Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Habakkuk, when things don't make sense, well, you could even call him Habakkuk. I don't know, you can call him whatever you want, but uh, Habby, if you like that, if you like short nicknames or whatever, but I call him Habakkuk. Habakkuk is how I pronounce it. Um, anyways, who was Habakkuk? Well, he was one of the last, actually he was the last of the minor prophets to prophesy in Judah. Judah was the southern kingdom of Israel uh, before the final Babylonian invasion. So he, that's kind of the time frame of when Habakkuk ministered. And based on the last verse of chapter 3, you don't need to turn there, we'll get to it in another week or so, but the last verse of chapter 3, it ends with this phrase, it says, to the chief musician with my stringed instruments. And what most people think is that this sounds like something having to deal with the priesthood. And so many believe that Habakkuk was a priest who was called to be a prophet. Because only the Levites in those days, and in particular the priests, were the ones who wrote songs and sang and performed songs in the temple. It would only be the priests that did that. So it kind of sounds like Habakkuk might have been a priest. Habakkuk was a contemporary of the major prophet Jeremiah. Now, when we call major and minor, it doesn't mean like he's like a small fry and this guy's more important. When they say major and minor, the major prophets, their, their prophecies, you know, the book of Jeremiah is huge. You know, when you compare it with three chapters of Habakkuk, that's where the division is, that major and minor. It has nothing to do with their ministries being one's better than the other, more important. But anyways... Habakkuk was a contemporary of the major prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah, by the way, also started out as a priest, and then he was called to be a prophet to Judah. You know, it's interesting, when you think of the priesthood, if you, if you look into the Old Testament and you read about it, the priests had a very regimented schedule. I mean, you know, they knew what time they had to go and do different things within the temple. They knew what times there was to pray. It was a very rigid well-defined schedule. If you're the kind of person that likes, you know, you like to have really nice and clean, neat, you know, thing, man, priesthood, if you could. <laughs> priesthood would be for you. <laughs> if you were a Levite, I guess I should say that. <laughs> so the priesthood was very regimented, had a very strict schedule of service that they were to, he to adhere to. The prophets, on the other hand, that's a little bit of a different story. If you read through the Old Testament prophets and you read about their lives, man, I tell you, everything was outside of the box for a prophet. They didn't have a rigid schedule. Basically, the Lord told them what to do and when to do it, and it could be the weirdest things. For example, Hosea was one of the prophets of the Lord. He was told to marry a prostitute who was unfaithful to him, who would be unfaithful to him even in his marriage. How would you like that? <laughs> the Lord's called me to marry a prostitute. That would be pretty, pretty interesting. Ezekiel, that prophet, was told to lay on one side for 390 days. Three, talk about bed sores. 390 days laying on one side, and then he, then he was allowed to flip over to the other side for 40 days. Could you imagine God calling you to do that? Not only that, he had to cook his food over cow dung. <laughs> uh, I just, you know, I like barbecues, but I don't know if I'd like the smell of that one. <laughs> Pretty strange. That's outside of the box. Isaiah had to walk naked and barefoot for three years. Now, it wasn't like God was trying to like, put them through these weird things. Okay, I want you to watch what this happened. You know, it's like with the angels, watch this. <laughs> it's not that. 
These things, which strange as they may seem, God used them as signs and messages to his people. There was a lesson in everything that God did with those people. So, needless to say, being a prophet of the Lord was not a cush ministry. It's not like, you know, it's not like people grow up, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a prophet, man. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do all these weird things. Unless you like weird things, but, you know. Doing and prophesying for the Lord in those days anyways would have been difficult. Probably in many cases it would be unprof- or un- un- not unprofitable, unpopular. Because you're sharing with a sinful people. God's sending you to, send, to, to, to talk to a people that's been rebellious. Um, you know, they probably didn't grow up wanting to be prophets, but they were called into that ministry. It's kind of interesting in our culture. You fast forward how many thousand years, and we have people within Christianity that you know they take on that title prophet, and it almost seems like wow, they're you know they're they're more spiritual than everybody else, and uh, you know they're they're. It's almost like a kind of a a badge of honor. I don't think it was that way in the Old Testament. I really don't. I think it was like man, God's given me this burden. He's called me to do this, and and I'm doing it. And that's what happened with Habakkuk. Habakkuk was called to be a prophet in a very difficult time, just like Jeremiah. Jeremiah, the, the weeping prophet, is what he's known as. Trying, you know, can you imagine a ministry where not a single person ever responds to your messages? They, they never respond. There's never anybody that comes forward except Christ. You know, in our culture, in our, you know, in the Old Testament, it would have been different. That it would repent of their sins. That was Jeremiah's prophecy, his ministry, the crying prophet, man, the weeping prophet. Well, Habakkuk here, because he prophesies of the Babylonian invasion, which we'll, we'll look at here in a couple minutes, and the destruction of Judah before it occurs, we can assume that he was probably ministering, he was probably a prophet to Judah during the reign of King Jehoiakim, one of the last kings of Judah before the Babylonian invasion. In fact, I think he might have been the last king. Um, and... Uh, we don't know how old Habakkuk was, so we can make, make assumptions all we want. We don't really know. But uh, if he reigned during the time of Jehoiakim, or if he, if he prophesied during Jehoiakim's uh, reign, it's probably a good chance that he was alive during the reign of Josiah, Jehoiakim's father. Probably a very good chance of that. And that is significant to the subject matter of this prophecy. And I want to talk about Josiah for a few minutes because I think it'll, once we get to the starting into this, I think it'll make sense. First of all, Josiah was a very young boy. He was eight years old when he became king. And the kingdom of Judah by that time had been in great rebellion against the Lord. They were steeped in idolatry by the time Josiah became king. Josiah, from a very early age, man, his heart was soft toward the Lord. And he was walking with the Lord and doing what was right in the sight of the Lord, as the scriptures tell us. In fact, by the time Josiah was 18, he had completed many reforms, in uh, civil reforms in the land. And if you read about it, he also ordered that the temple, the temple, man, that they, it had just been pretty much in disrepair by that point in that time, and uh, he ordered that the temple be repaired. And during the renovation process, these workers are in there, they found a scroll of the law of the Lord, and they brought it to the king, which is interesting because kings 
of Judah and Israel, that was one of the requirements. They were to read the law of the Lord on a regular basis. Man, they were to, the law of the Lord was to be in their hearts. Nobody had been reading it at that point. Nobody even knew where it was or what it was at that point. And so somebody found a scroll and said, hey, there's, and they dusted it off. And like, wow, we got to show this to King Josiah. And they brought it to King Josiah. And he read it and he tore his clothes, weeping over the prophecies and the, the, the proclamations that were in there. And he tore his clothes in repentance. And he ordered that the people keep a Passover to the Lord. In fact, I'm going to read this to you. It's in Second Chronicles 35. It talks about this Passover. It said, There had been no Passover kept in Israel like that since the days of Samuel the prophet. And none of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as Josiah kept with the priests and the Levites, all Judah and Israel who were present, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Man, talk about revival. Talk about, man, finally coming back to where they should have been all along, worshiping the Lord and serving the Lord and, and, and observing the Passover and things like that. Well, Josiah was 39 years old when he died. He had a son. He had several sons. His son by the name of Shalom, who is also known as Jehoahaz, reigned in his place. And unfortunately, Josiah's sons were wicked. And Shalom was extremely wicked. And he only reigned for three months as king in Judah. Because Pharaoh Necho at that time of Egypt came down into Judah. He took uh, Shalom, brought him in chains back to Egypt. And uh, 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 <laughs> Shalom or Jehoahaz died in Egypt. And then King Necho, this, Egypt, this Egyptian pharaoh, he basically put Jehoiakim, uh, who was another son of Josiah, in his place. And so Jehoiakim, the Bible says, was just as wicked as Shalom. He was just as wicked, just as bad. And so, um, so these were the sons of Josiah. So I bring all this up because Habakkuk most likely experienced all this. He was living during that time and ministering during that time. And so he had seen the civil reforms in the land. You know, because the, 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 Josiah didn't read all the stuff that he did. He, he burned the bones of the, alt, of, the, uh, of the prophets of Baal and different prophets on the altars. He, he just smashed idol, you know, idol uh, worshiping places and temples. And so, I mean, he did, it was amazing what he did. And so Habakkuk saw this stuff. And being of the priesthood and being one who loved the Lord, man, what a, what a glorious thing to see all these reforms taking place. The problem was, it was a reform. What's a reform? A reform, and I got this out of the dictionary, it's the action or process of reforming an institution or practice. Sounds good anyways, right? Hey, we're finally cleaning up all the, all the idols and the idol worshipers, and we're coming back to the worship of the Lord. The problem with reform is that it comes from the outside. It's external. Let me give you an example of a reform. Say you're a heavy smoker. And, uh, you know, you know all the warning signs, but, you know, I've been smoking for all my life. I'm going to keep smoking. Nothing, you know, nothing's going to stop me from smoking. I'm a smoker, which is fine. You know, I don't, that's it. That's your choice. But you got, you're going to go take a flight. So you're going to fly across country or something like that. You get on the airplane. What are, they, what are the signs, man? No smoking. In fact, you can't even smoke in the terminal, but, you know, no smoking. So for however many hours you're flying and however many hours you're in that airplane and you're in that terminal, you're not smoking. 
Because you can't. That's an external thing that's been forced on you. You can't smoke. In fact, you'll get in very big trouble if you do. But I tell you what, if you're a chain smoker, you're a regular, you, what's the first thing you do when you get out of that place? i got to get outside, and you light up something, right? I mean, so what's taking place? Well, for that external thing, you didn't smoke. But you're still a smoker. And as soon as you get out of there, man, I'm going to smoke again. That's the problem with reforms. Reforms come from the outside. Reform, reformation and transformation are not the same thing. Here's a definition for transformation. A thorough or dramatic change in form or appearance. See, the difference between transformation and reformation is reformation comes from the outside. It's forced on you. And that's what Josiah did in his culture in, in the land of Judah. But the people weren't transformed. Transformation comes from inside out. And so it didn't take long before the nation of Judah quickly, quickly, after Josiah died, quickly slipped, slipped back into idolatry and worshiping of false idols and rebellion against the Lord. Romans 12.2 says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and perfect and acceptable will of God. See, if you're outwardly this morning, if you're outwardly compliant to God's word and his principles, you know, you're, I'm a Christian, so I got to do this, you know, type of a thing, or, or maybe you're, you're, maybe you're younger, it's like my parents are forcing this on me, so I, you know, I've got to, I've got to obey because there's this external control. If you are outwardly compliant, but you're inwardly defiant against God and against his, against his precepts, you're not a transformed person. You might be reformed, but you're not transformed. So Habakkuk saw this, the great reforms in the land, undoubtedly. And man, what a wonderful time to be alive, man. Things are coming, the things are, man, it's awesome. Awesome to be alive at that time. But after Josiah died, Habakkuk started seeing an increasing and probably one of the greatest spiritual and moral declines of the nation of Judah prior to the Babylonian invasion. You know, I look at our culture today. You know, I, I mean, sin has always been around. There's always been sin. There's always been people that have rebelled against the Lord and stuff. But generally, at least in the United States, our culture has been, you know, we've been kind of, I don't know how to say it, maybe stable or whatever. There, you know, there was some, some sorts of decency in our society. Wow. You know, if you're an older person, you can remember back to when it was, however it was. I, I, did, I was... Too young to grow up during when Leave It to Beaver was on. You know, it was prime time. Maybe some of you were around and you remember seeing it when it came out. I, I don't. But I remember seeing the reruns of Leave It to Beaver. And, uh, you know, that was that life. That's that mentality of the, of the lifestyle that I grew up in as a young child. Man, where are we from where it was then to where it is now? It's amazing. It's amazing. And so this book or this background that I shared, kind of gives you a theme, so you can kind of understand why Habakkuk is saying what he's saying this morning. Because he lived during some great times, but now it's all gone. You know, I look at the last few years in our society, man, how depressing it is to see what's taking place. And so the book of Habakkuk is timeless in that it describes the cry of God's people in the darkest of times that they find themselves living in. 
So I pray that this will be any, you know, something we can take and go, man, it makes sense because I'm seeing it too in my own life. So let's take a look at verse 1. Habakkuk 1, verse 1. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. The burden. What's the burden? Well, if you go through some of the Old Testament prophecies, the burden, it generally means the word of the Lord. The Lord laid a word, you know, gave a word or, or a message for a prophet. And so that's kind of, that's the first. When you look at that, that's what, it's, that's what it's talking about. A message from the Lord. But I think it's also significant when it talks about a burden being the weight. The weight of what the prophet saw or the weight of the message that the prophet had to give to God's people. So Habakkuk had a burden. What did Habakkuk see in and around Jerusalem that was so, you know, heart heartbreaking for him? Again, remember I said Jeremiah was his contemporary. Jeremiah, if you go through that book, really describes what it actually was like in Judah during that time. And again, Habakkuk would have been alive at the very same time. And so I just grabbed a few things out of Jeremiah that kind of gives a little description of what that rebellion was. Because it's easy. Well, they were in rebellion against the Lord. What does that mean? Well, here's some examples. Jeremiah said, everyone is given to covetousness. Everyone. Everyone's given to covetousness. What is covetousness? It means to delight in or to desire greatly. And it's usually something that's not yours. <laughs> the Lord told this in Exodus 20, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. So, you know, someone comes to church with a new car and it's like, oh, man. And then you get all upset. Maybe you don't, but maybe you do. You know, man, ah, oh, I need a new car like that. You know, why did that person get that car? I deserve a car like that. You know, or, or. You know, you've been married for a few years and, you know, you, there's a little struggle maybe in your marriage over different things. And your friend, man, you look at their marriage and go, man, man, that spouse, they're right on, man. They're sensitive. They're, they're good. Man. I wish that was my spouse. And you pretty soon, if you're not careful, your heart can be drawn to somebody else and, and you can be coveting your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's husband, so to speak. It could go both ways. So that's kind of a covetousness. And so Jeremiah said, man, everyone is coveting. Everyone in Judah at that time. He says this, everyone deals falsely. Now that could be just outright lying, right? You're just, you're just, you're just lying. But it could also be just subtly deceiving people. You know, just not being totally honest or maybe withholding some of the truth. You know, you're just, you're, you're, you're trying to, maybe even manipulation could probably fit into that same category where you're not being completely open, transparent, and honest. That was the culture. Jeremiah said this, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. What does he mean by glory? It means man glorifying or taking pride in himself, and that was taking place in the culture as well. People were pride and maybe prideful in, in how wise or how intelligent they were. They might have been, or they were, prideful in their success or their wealth. Or how much influence or power that they wielded in that society. So pride, they're, they're dealing with pride. The other thing that Jeremiah said is they rejected the word of the Lord. And he also said they were walking according to the dictates of their own hearts. 
So in other words, they're, they, you know, they're completely just disregarding God's word and his principles. And they're doing whatever they think is right. You know, you could talk to someone today in our, in our culture, in our generation, you talk to them about the Lord, and they go, yeah, that, that, and I've had that happen to me before. Some would say, well, you know, that's, that's good for you. I'm glad it's working out for you, but, man, that's not, that's not where I'm at, you know. Everyone's doing whatever they think is right. He says this, all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. Circumcision was a cutting away of the flesh, and it was a spiritual picture as well of people that were uncircumcised were walking in the flesh, in sinful flesh. They were walking according to their flesh, as we read in the New Testament, not being led by the Holy Spirit. It gets worse. They even burned their sons and their daughters in the fire. This would have been to the worship of Molech. And I don't need to go into the details of that, but it was horrific. Sacrificing, human sacrifice. And what had happened was Judah, the nation of Judah, they had adopted the practice of the heathen nations that God had judged and displaced. Here they're doing the same thing. And then he says this, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Wow. In other words, they're so jaded now. They're so accustomed. They're, they're, they, they, you know what they've been entertained with, what they've what they've been you know joking around about. They, there's no shame anymore. They, they they can't blush. Everything's dirty. You look at our look at just turn on the TV. <laughs> the jokes, the innuendos. You know nobody knows how to blush anymore. And then finally, he said, "The prophets prophesy lies in my name." I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, and the deceit of their heart. And so there's false teachings going on. Man, look at our culture. There's a lot of, the Bible says there's going to be a lot of spiritual deception in the last days before Christ's return, and we're seeing it. We're seeing it in spades. So I think this was the burden that Habakkuk saw in his culture around him. And so that kind of gives you an idea of, of, of why Habakkuk's going to say what he says here. If you look at verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore perverse judgments proceeds. Habakkuk's first question, and it might have been a question that you asked too. How long? How long, Lord? How long am I going to cry out to you? I don't know if you turn on the news and you see something terrible and go, Lord, why are you allowing this to take place? You read about an abduction of a child. Man, it just breaks my heart. Or you read about some elderly person walking down the street and some thugs come and beat the tar out of them. Lord, why are you allowing this to take place? How long is this going to take place? And so Habakkuk says, how long shall I cry out to you? Uh, cry and you will not hear, even cry out to you. Those are two different words, by the way, the cry, the, he the Hebrew words. The first one means to cry for help or despair in kind of in a general thing. You know, I'm thinking he's just praying to the Lord, basically. The second one, the second cry in there, it's a primitive root means to shriek from anguish or danger. That kind of gives you an idea of where Habakkuk's heart is. Lord, why is this taking place? 
Do you, you know, when you hear about stuff that takes place, in our, do you weep? Do you go, man, Lord, why is this taking place? Unfortunately, we hear so much of it that it kind of just, you know, another, another shooting, another school shooting, rather than it's like, Lord, it's breaking my heart. He says, how long shall I cry out and you will not hear, even cry out to you violence and you will not save? Now, if I say violence, you kind of have an idea. In fact, I was just reading today about this morning, early this morning, about some, some guys in, I don't know, North Carolina that were going around beating up homeless people. And they murdered one of them, actually. But they, they beat him up unconscious, basically. And they finally got caught, three of them anyways. I think it was the fourth one they haven't been able to identify yet. But that's kind of, when you think of violence, I mean, that's probably what you would think of, right? Somebody coming in, they're just... Uh, beating somebody up, assaulting somebody. In the Bible, though, it depends on the context, what it means. It implies cruelty, damage, and injustice. Now, originally, you think of violence, you know, cruel, physical harm. I mean, that's kind of the first thing that you think of, probably, when you hear of violence. And there's an example in the Old Testament. Gideon, his son Abimelech, murdered 70 of his brothers in one day on a stone. I don't know if he cut their heads off or what, but he murdered 70 of his brothers. And the Bible talks about the violence that he did. So, I mean, that's, you, okay, you get a picture. It's, it's cruel physical harm. There's an interesting one in Genesis chapter 16, verse 5, and that is when Hagar is talking to Abraham, or not, not Hagar, Sarah is talking to Abraham. And remember, Sarah's the one that said, hey, you know, God's promised us a son. Why don't you, uh, you know, sleep with my, uh, with, my, with my maid or, you know, my servant, Hagar, and we'll have a, we'll have a son through her, through him. Yeah, through her, excuse me. And, uh, and so Abraham does, right? What's interesting is in chapter 16, verse 5, Hagar says, man, the violence done to me, it's on you, man. <laughs> so that, uh, I don't know how to explain that. That's kind of an interesting thing. But basically, that means like the injustice. So that, and that word's the same word for violence. It's, it, it, it infers injustice. In Proverbs 3.31, there's a violent man there, and it's referring to an oppressor. Same Hebrew word for violence. In Malachi 2.16, says, for the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence. Says It's the same word. Says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Now, I would venture to say, and there might be some cases, but I would venture to say someone's getting a divorce. It's not because, well, my husband beat me all the time or, you know, something like that. I mean, I know it happens. So, But what that is talking about is the damage that a divorce does. What, what, it tears apart what God has joined together. You know, husband and wife, they're one flesh. And then that flesh is ripped. And I don't know if you've ever ripped your flesh before, but it hurts. It leaves a wound. It leaves a scar. And, and that, that's what God is talking about. He hates, he hates divorce because of the violence, the damage and the injustice of divorce. So, so when Habakkuk is talking about violence, yeah, I'm sure he's talking about physical, someone beating somebody up. But he's also talking about all this that he's taking place. So you're reading this, or I'm reading this, and I'm going, wow, that sounds just like our culture today. It doesn't seem much different. So Habakkuk cried out to the Lord regarding all the cruelty, the damage, and the injustice taking place all around here. 
all around him. And he says, Lord, how long are you going to let this take place? His second question is why? Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Why didn't God remove the wicked people or remove Habakkuk from the wicked people, from the violent wicked people? You know, if you think about it, prior to the flood, the Bible's same word about violence, says that the earth was filled with violence, was filled with wickedness, and God removed Noah out of that. He took Noah and his family out of that wickedness, put them in an ark. And he also removed the wicked people from the face of the earth. So, I mean, God did something about it, right? But everywhere Habakkuk's turning, it's like God's not doing anything. He sees wickedness. And again, remember, he's probably remembering back to the times of the reforms of Josiah. And now within his own generation, he's seeing morality disintegrated, right? Within a generation, he's seeing how things are going. And so he's like, why? Why, why am I here, Lord? Why, why am I in the middle of all this? You know, when Jesus was talking to his disciples, he said, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be as wise as serpents and harmless of doves. Lord, why, why do you have us go out into a world that hates us and there's all this wickedness? Why, Lord? Even, it's even within the church. Do you remember the parable of the wheat and the tares? Talks about how an enemy sowed, sowed tares into this field and, and the workers see the tares and they come to the, to the owner of the field and say, Master, what, what do we do about this? And he said, let both grow together until harvest. And so even in the Christian church, you know, there's, there's wheat and there's tares. There's sheep and there's wolves in the midst of fellowships. Why don't you do anything about it, Lord God? You might have asked that before. Then he says this, therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. The law is powerless. If you have a King James Bible, it's the law is slacked. And basically, that means powerless. But the law was powerless only in the sense that the people just disregarded it. They just they didn't care what the law said. They didn't care what God said. They had a total disregard for God's law. And you know what blows me away? Because when I look at our society, I go, yeah, they've, they've completely disregarded God's law. Habakkuk's talking about God's people. The nation of Judah, God's people. And they completely blow off God and his word. That's pretty heavy. That would have been a burden. You know, we have laws on the books. And I would venture to say most of them are good laws. They're just laws. They're, they're, they're right. The problem is, and you, I could tell you, I'm preaching to the choir. They're, being, they're not even being enforced anymore. Those good laws, those just laws, they're just, they're just not being enforced. Or they're being enforced on one group of individuals but not on another group of individuals. It's like, whoa, wait a minute. There's two standards here all of a sudden. You know, like we've been seeing throughout the United States anyways, all these radical liberal DAs that have been, you know, district attorneys and attorney generals that have been put in place. And, and it's like they are either ignoring the law or they're selectively applying it. It's like the law doesn't mean anything. Even our institutions like the Department of Justice and the FBI, I'm getting political, but you know what I mean? We look at these, these things and it's like there should be equal, equal application of the law and we're seeing it's not equal. 
It's disturbing. I'm, I get disturbed. I get really depressed when I watch the news. I've got to stop watching it. Even the laws are being taken away. It's not just that they have good laws, but they're taking away the laws. Psalm 11.3 says this, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And you know, the foundation of justice in our nation is being destroyed right before our eyes in our society. Injustice is everywhere. And I don't have to tell you that, but that's what Habakkuk was seeing. Double standards, hypocrisy, just depending on whose side you were on, basically. In our society, criminals are now having more rights than victims. And so as, maybe you can really identify with Habakkuk right now. You go, Lord, how long are you going to let this stuff take place? Why aren't you doing anything? Why aren't you saying anything, Lord? Why are you silent? Well, God answers Habakkuk in verse 5. This is the Lord speaking to him. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. For indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. Remember Habakkuk's cry, Lord, Lord, how long and why are you allowing these things? Why aren't you doing anything? I'm, I'm paraphrasing. And the Lord's response, I will work a work in your days. In fact, I am doing a work in your days. I am raising up the Chaldeans. That's the Babylonians, basically. The point is, the Lord is working. He's not idle. He's not aloof. And that's true in our day, too. God's still working. He's not aloof to what's going on. In fact, the Lord says, and it'd be almost like him saying this, in fact, Habakkuk, you wouldn't even believe it if I told you beforehand. Man, it, it, go back like three or four years, and maybe five years, and, and then look at where we're at right now. Would you have believed where we were at right now with things that have taken place? I wouldn't have. No clue. Amazing. First thing for you and I to remember, God, you know, the Bible says in Second Peter that he's long-suffering. He's patient. That's why he hasn't returned yet. He's, he's not willing that any perish, but that all come to repentance. And, and that's, I mean, that's why we're doing the Franklin Graham. God loves you tour here in Rochester. God wants to see people come to faith in him. You know, sometimes you go, I wonder what God's will is for my life. Well, I could tell you right now. His will is that no wedding you perish, but all come to repentance. If you're like, I don't know, what I, I want to do something, but I want to be in God. Man, volunteer for the God Loves You Tour in some way or form, because you'll be participating, you'll be partnering in what God wants to do. God wants to do this. It's not just Franklin Graham, hey, I want to see a lot of people, you know, so I can, I can say how many thousands I've reached for Christ. No, he's doing what God wants to see done in our culture, in our society. So God's not only... He's patient. He's not only willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance, but he's actively at work in our generation. You may not see it, but he is active in our generation, working. He's got a plan and a purpose, even for what's going on right here, right now. Regarding the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, if you look at verse 7, they are terrible. This is the Lord describing them to Habakkuk. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. 
Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings, and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold, for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. This is God describing the people that he's using to judge his people. (laughs) They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Think about the people of Judah. They totally disregarded God's law. They were a law unto themselves. It was just like in the days of the judges of Israel. It says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's what, that's what Habakkuk was looking at when he looked at Judah. And so God says they're going to be conquered by a people that are going to do what's right in their own eyes. They're going to do what they think's right. And then the Lord says, and it's that same word, they all come for violence. Now we know the Babylonians were violent. I mean, they were vicious when they conquered people and nations. They were, they were physically cruel, but they were also unjust and oppressive, and they also inflicted much damage. In other words, Jerusalem is going to be reaping what they sowed, basically, in God's judgment against them. They've sown to the wind. Man, they're going to reap the whirlwind, as the scripture says. Then he finishes, and this is the Lord again, still speaking, verse 11. Then his mind changes, and he transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing this power to his God. And if you go back in history, that's exactly what happened with Babylon. Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, the first king, I think we might even see him in heaven, to be honest with you. When we went through the book of Daniel, I don't know, earlier this year, I think, he, I think we're going to see him in heaven. But his grandson, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, and, and, and the Babylonians, they were used by God to judge the nation of Judah. But they weren't innocent themselves. And God's saying, there's going to come a time when they are going to sin against me. They're going to ascribe the power, their glory to themselves. When God is the one that raised them up and used them in that way. And from time to time throughout history, God has used godless people as instruments of judgment for his people. But it doesn't mean that those people that he used as his instruments, they're accountable to God too. God will judge them as well. In fact, there's a prophecy, prophecy against Babylon in Isaiah 47, verse 6. There's a lot of them, but in one of them, this is what the Lord says regarding Babylon. I was angry with my people, speaking of the nation of Judah. I have profaned my inheritance and given them into your hand. But then he says this, and he's speaking of the Babylonians. You showed them no mercy. On the elderly, you laid your yoke very heavily. So, I mean, God's going to hold them accountable as well. So first... Habakkuk is asking, why are you not doing anything, Lord, about all this wickedness taking place around me? And the Lord is responding. He says, I am working. In fact, I'm raising up the Babylonians, and they're fierce, they're terrible, they're going to be violent, they're going to do all these wicked things to you guys. I'm I'm bringing them in. God's bringing them in. That's not a prosperity message, is it? But that's what God's doing. But that doesn't sit well with Habakkuk, as it wouldn't sit well with me either. I mean, (laughs) wow. Wow. And so he asked the Lord there, verse 12, 
Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for corruption. You are of purer eyes than the behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? This is what Habakkuk is saying. God, you're holy. Sin can't even dwell in your presence. Why would you use a nation that is even more wicked than your people to judge your people? That's a legitimate question, I think. Why, why are you doing that, Lord God? I was reading a commentary, and I read this, and, and it just struck me. David Guzik, he's a Calvary Chapel pastor. He's got a pretty good commentary. But he made this comment, and I said, wow, when I read it. And let me, I'll put it up on the screen. He's speaking about this, that Habakkuk is, what Habakkuk was saying. He says, it would be like crying out to God about the state of the church in America and hearing God respond by saying, I'll fix the problem by a communist invasion of America. We would say, wait a minute, Lord, the problem's bad, but your, your cure is worse than a disease. Now, I know that David Guzik didn't write that like this past year or so or this past couple years. I'm sure this has been out there for a while. It seems to me almost prophetic in a sense because that's exactly what's taking place in our nation. In our nation. China is rising up. to be a, China's going to be a problem. They already are a problem, but they're going to be a much greater problem here. And I really believe the Lord's doing that. The Lord's raising up a communist nation to judge this nation. We've been blessed so much. God has, God has given us so much. We know so much. We've given so much responsibility, and we've completely turned our backs on the Lord God. As a culture, generally speaking, we've turned our backs on the Lord God. Judgment has to happen at some point, and it could happen through... Now, I don't believe China... You know, like we're gonna have China some, that'd make a good movie, you know? The Chinese soldiers are showing up here, you know, kicking us out of church. I don't think that's going to happen. They're not going to, I don't think they're going to physically take us over, but they will politically. They already are financially and socially. They're the ones that came up with a social credit system. You know, they, they're actually using that in China right now, where if you abide by the party lines, you can buy and sell stuff. That sounds kind of familiar to the book of Revelation. I don't know. We're getting there, folks. We're getting there. I, it just it jumped out of me. I'm like, Wow. Did he even realize what he said there? Well, Habakkuk continues, verse 14. Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? They, and he's speaking of the, the, like the Babylonians, they take up all of them with a hook. They catch them in their net and gather them in their dragnet. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet. Because by them their share is sumptuous and their food plentiful. Shall, you there, shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? Man, the Babylonians, they just mowed over countries. They just mowed over. They took that. People were just property, basically. They just, it didn't matter. They killed. They caused mayhem. They ransacked everything. They were just like, like a locust invasion. And so Habakkuk saying, why would you allow a foreign army to come and have no regard for people? 
and conquer them in the way that a commercial fisherman just gathers fish up into a net. Even, Lord, especially, Lord, when you say, hey, they're not even going to honor me. <laughs> God says, hey, they're going to come and they're do this, and then they're going to ascribe this power to themselves. Habakkuk's like, Lord, what, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? Why would you allow someone to come in that are more wicked than your people, conquer your people, and then take the credit for themselves, saying, well, we did this. Well, that's where Habakkuk ends that phrase. But, you know, we get to chapter 2, verse 1. And Habakkuk comes to kind of a resolution. I mean, he's perplexed, and he's disturbed by what the Lord said. But he comes to a resolution. There's going to be three resolutions that Habakkuk's going to make in the book of Habakkuk. And one of them we're going to look at this morning. That's the last one. It's chapter 2, verse 1. Speaking of nets, you know, he's been talking about fishermen and nets. Speaking of nets, this is the net result. What's the net result? So, you know, when you get to a new job or something, you know, I, I work for this company and, you know, they, I, you know, I knew what I salary was getting. So I get this... Getting this salary. Sorry, that was just me. <laughs> I'm not Italian, but I'm kind of doing this thing, flaying with my hands. Um, you know, I knew what my gross salary was. And then they would say, well, you know, if you consider your gross salary and you add these benefits, you know, you're getting all these benefits, these things that they're not in your paycheck. But, you know, then this is a more fuller picture of what you're earning. And, and that's, that's great. You know what matters to me? <laughs> What's, what's the net? <laughs> what's my take-home pay? That's what I care about. What am I going to end up with after Uncle Sam takes his unhealthy share? You know, it's like, what? You know, that's what matters. What's the bottom line? When the rubber meets the road, what's the net? And so Habakkuk's been, I mean, I, I don't find any fault in what Habakkuk has said. He's asking the same questions I've asked. Every time I turn on the news, Lord, why, why this again? But he comes to a resolution. This is the net of Habakkuk's dialogue between himself and the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 1. I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will, what I will answer when I'm corrected. What's he going to do? First of all, he's going to wait. He said this to the Lord, but now he's going to wait. He's going to wait for a response. Sometimes it's like, Lord, I need an answer today. I need to know an answer. This, I don't understand what's going on. I need it now. And then the answer doesn't come always right away, right? We're just waiting. There's some things that I'm still kind of perplexed about that I don't know how many years later, I'm, I don't have an answer for it. I'm still perplexed. I'm waiting. I'm going to wait for a response. You know, God is not on your and my timeline. He doesn't keep the same schedule we do. In fact, God exists outside of time. He will give an answer. He answers prayer, but it will be in his time. And so Habakkuk's waiting, but he's also watching. He's watching to see what the Lord's going to say to him. In other words, he's expecting that God's going to answer his prayer. He's expecting that the God's going to respond to him. I would encourage you when you pray, man, expect that God's going to respond to you because he will in his time. But he will respond to you. He answers prayer. Now, the answer may not be exactly what you were hoping the answer is going to be. But he does answer prayer according to his wisdom. The last thing that I want to point out is what I think really jumps out of this verse. When he says, 
First of all, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait and see what the Lord says. I'm going to watch for an answer. And then I'm going to wait and see what I say in response when I'm corrected. Wow. <laughs> That's humility. In other words, Habakkuk says, you know what? I may, my thinking may not even be right. I, I'll let the Lord correct me. You know, sometimes we get so set in our ways. God, you've got to do this. You've got to do that. And if you don't do it the way I'm expecting it, then you've got to answer to me, Lord. Why aren't you doing it this way? And we get that attitude. That's not humility. Habakkuk's like, Lord, maybe my thinking's wrong. Maybe I, maybe I don't understand the whole picture. And I'm going to wait and you can correct me, Lord. I can tell you right now. I, you know, I think things. I've got, I, I've got things that I think about and my beliefs and all these. I, I don't know that I'm necessarily right on everything. I really don't. I, I don't say that to kind of scare you like, oh, I hope he's not a false prophet or anything. But, but I'll be honest with you. I don't have the monopoly on the truth. You don't either. We're, we're, we're all in this together, like Red Green used to say. <laughs> we're all in this together. But the humility of saying, you know what, maybe I am wrong, and I'm, I'm going to let you correct me, Lord. Man, I, I would pray that that would be all of our hearts and attitudes, whatever we're going through, because we don't see the big picture. In fact, I'm going to close with this verse. Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 9. This is the Lord speaking. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We may have everything figured out in our brain, and you know we like the nice, tidy, loose. You know we don't like loose ends. We like everything A and B should produce C, and you know we got to... God doesn't think like that. His thoughts are way above ours. Are you okay with that? Can you trust him in that? Because as we go through the rest of Habakkuk, Habakkuk's, there's going to be more stuff he's going to share, and then, and then he's going to make a, res, a, a resolution, a statement. At the end, in fact, at the end of chapter 2, I'll give you a hint. At the end of, end of chapter 2, he comes to a resolution. At the end of chapter 3, he makes a final resolution. And as we go through this, I hope, I hope it encourages you, because I look, I think, this is so fitting for our day and age we're living in right now. And what should our response be? Well, this morning, hey, maybe, maybe we don't have it all figured out. Maybe we're not right. We're thinking God should be doing this, but he's not. And we think he needs to answer to us. Why aren't you doing it the way I think you should do it? And God says, your ways are not my ways. I'm not thinking the way you're thinking. You're wrong. Let every man be wrong. God's right. God's right. Why don't you stand up? Let's go, Lord, and pray. I have the worship team. Come on up.